The Apostle Paul here formulates a single sentence, which is so profound, so rich in theological meaning that it continues to dazzle biblical scholars to this very day. Commenting on this verse, the renowned scholar Alfred Plummer said, and listen to what he says here. I don't believe he's just spilling ink. He says, this is a man who's given his whole life to the study of Scripture. These words are a bold attempt to express what cannot even be grasped in human thought, still less be expressed in human language. But Paul tries. He tries to say what we perhaps can never fully perceive. And of course he does more than just try, for he writes precisely what the Holy Spirit wants us to understand about the atonement of Jesus Christ. Our finite minds will fail to fully grasp the meaning and the beauty of this single verse. Yet we are privileged here to stop and to drink deeply of the reality of Christ's atoning, substitutionary death. This verse is a deep well. And we will return to this well for spiritual drink over and over again until we meet the Lord. We will never get to the bottom of it. It will never run dry. We have come in 2 Corinthians 5 and verse 21 to the very center of the Christian faith. So as you prepare your heart to commune with the living Christ at this table, I encourage you to savor three truths upon which this memorial meal is grounded and upon which our lives as Christ's children depend. First of all, we notice here that Jesus was sinless. I'd like us to consider this at some length. Jesus was sinless. sinless. What does it mean that Jesus had no sin? The Greek text reads literally that he knew no sin. He obviously knew about sin. Jesus saw plenty of it. In fact, Jesus saw the most heinous of all human sins ever committed. He watched it from the cross as it unfolded. And unfolding the night before and throughout his ministry, Jesus knew sin in that sense. The point is obviously here that Jesus never committed any sin. He made him who had no sin to be sin. Focusing on that idea that Jesus had no sin, we must recognize that this is an awesome statement. It is a glorious truth concerning Jesus Christ. But some theologians explain away this glorious truth about Jesus in a number of different ways, but I'd like to consider two theological errors that are fairly common through the history of the church. The first, some theologians have argued on the force of this verse that Jesus was not fully human. And really, there's some logic in that. Every human being sins. We know this by experience. We know that the Word of God teaches this. Everyone sins. So if Jesus never sinned, Jesus could not be human. This is a conclusion to which many have come. The ancient heresy of Docetism, for instance, proclaimed that Jesus only appeared to be a man. Such thinking was vehemently opposed, of course, by the Apostle John far before the Docetists got any feet under them. But John, in 1 John 1, you remember in his epistle, 
goes out of his way. In fact, he's tripping all over himself to say Jesus was a man. We saw him. We touched him with our hands. We heard him with our ears. Jesus Christ was a man. He goes so far to say in that first epistle, chapter 4 and verse, and verse 3, that everyone who does not believe that Christ Jesus came in the flesh expresses the spirit of Antichrist. Jesus Christ was a man. This is no answer. It is no answer. He did not sin. The answer is not that he was not a human being. Jesus was fully man. But we come back to it. If Jesus was a man, how can it be that he never sinned? We must remember here that Adam and Eve were not created sinful. Sin is an alien disease to the human experience. Sin is contrary to our creative design. Meditate on this. Think on this. By being sinless, Jesus was not less than human. By being sinless, Jesus was not less than human. In fact, by being sinless, Jesus was the ultimate man. He was all that humanity was created to be. But it's precisely at this point that biblical interpreters have again taken a wrong turn in past history, and in fact in present history. At this point, others have committed the opposite error, the mere opposite error of the Docetists, who said Jesus wasn't fully man. And they say this, believing that the sinless Jesus was the ultimate man, some have argued that living a sinless life is possible for every human being. This position was most notably articulated by Pelagius, a Celtic monk living in the 4th and 5th centuries. It is the belief of many nominal Christians today. There are many churches in our area, in our town, in our region, throughout this world who claim to be Christian churches that teach that everyone is free to live a perfect life and a sinless life, at least a life on their own that will get them into heaven. Pelagius taught that man was entirely free not to sin. He failed to understand what it means to be born in Adam. In Adam, we are born as sinners. And we are not free not to sin. Certainly there is a moral freedom there and a choice that we make to sin, but we really are not free in our nature to sin. I am not free in my nature to fly on my own. I don't have that in me. I can't pull that off. And in like manner, as human beings, we are not free not to sin. We may want to, we may even try to, but we will sin. This is an equal error. And again, it runs right up against the Apostle, Paul, Apostle John's witness, doesn't it? Where he said in bold words in that first epistle, anyone who says that he is without sin is a liar. There's a third error to which we are perhaps a bit more tempted. And that is to think, though we would not put this down on a, a quiz or a test, but to think a bit in our minds that maybe Jesus wasn't really tempted. Having steered clear of those first two, that he wasn't a man, we know that he was a man. Having steered clear of the idea that perhaps all of us are free not to sin, we might come to the conclusion that Jesus really wasn't tempted. 
we can make this error and strip Christ's sinlessness of all of its wonder. We might question whether Jesus was truly tempted to sin because we know that God cannot be tempted to sin. And so our tendency may be to think of the humanity of Jesus as protected behind some divine force field. He was a man on the inside of the force field, but on the outside there was this bubble of divinity that kept him really free from any true temptation. There are temptations in my life with which I struggle every day. There are temptations in your life with which you struggle. And we can kind of think, but Jesus didn't really feel that. He didn't really sense it the way that I do because of this divine force field around him. He was divine God. How could he be tempted? We know James says, God cannot be tempted with evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Chapter 1 and verse 13. We need to think carefully here, or we lose all the wonder of this statement. We must recognize that in his human nature, Jesus was very much tempted to sin. In fact, as Hebrews 4 and verse 15 puts it, Jesus was tempted. Contemplate this as we come to the table. Think of this as you compare it with your own life. Jesus was tempted in every way just as we are. And yet was without sin. He was tempted in every way just as we are. Obviously, the circumstances, the nuances, every factor in the temptation was not identical to ours unless we would look at it in some sense of his bearing sin. But in essence, he faced every temptation that you or I will ever face and never sinned. Jesus, in fact, endured a greater degree of temptation than we will ever experience. Because he did not yield to any temptation before it reached its full intensity. It is logical, or rather illogical, to conclude that since Jesus endured every temptation to the very end, that he was not tempted. I think I can illustrate this probably better than just trying to explain it any further. Let's take two young men, they're hired by a man who has a large property. He's going away for the day. And as he hires these two young men, he has committed, they have committed to dig a ditch for him. The problem is it's a day like yesterday was at Camp Clearwaters. For those that were part of the retreat, it was, it is a hot day. And the sun is beating down. There's no shade. There's no relief anywhere. And these two young guys have to go and dig this ditch all day long. And as the owner of the property leaves, he says, Now, I know you guys can see over there that there's a swimming pool. But I want you to understand, I have hired you to work for eight hours. Do not go in that swimming pool. The first guy works under the sun. It's beating him to death. He's sweating and tired and hot. And he looks over at that pool, and it just becomes more than he can take. And after four hours of messy, dirty work, he just makes a beeline, runs for the pool, and dives in. Now that second individual keeps working and he gets to hour five and he gets to hour six and he hears his friend over there splashing in the water and he sees the shimmering waters and he's getting beaten down by the hot sun and every minute he's just saying how I want to jump in that pool but he doesn't do it 
hour seven, and hour eight comes, and the owner comes home, and this second worker has done what he has been asked to do. Now, would you conclude from this story that worker number two was never tempted? Do you not draw, in fact, the very opposite conclusion? That he was tempted more to jump into that swimming pool because he drained the temptation to the end. He made it, and he endured its harshest moments as that other individuals in the pool and swimming. How illogical it would be for us to conclude that because Jesus didn't give in to the sin, he never sinned. In fact, the very opposite is our proper conclusion. He endured the full measure of every temptation that we have ever faced. And those temptations to which we have yielded, Jesus tasted those temptations to a fuller degree because he never sinned. That is stunning. So let's pop the view of the divine force field and realize that in his human nature, Jesus was tempted but didn't sin. We must press this point just a bit further or the force of Christ's sinlessness, I think, will again be muted. And this is my agenda here, if that's not clear. It's for us to see it for what it is. As far as human words can in this moment here with the incapacities that we have to try to sense what it means that Jesus did not sin, could Jesus have been tempted? Or could Jesus have yielded to the temptation? Theologians refer to this as the impeccability of Jesus. That is, was he unable to sin? I think we would say, and without going into long detail, no, due to his divine nature, Jesus could not sin. James 1 and verse 13. But remember, this does not minimize the temptation Jesus experienced in his human nature. Rather than view his divine nature as this force field around him that kept him from sensing the temptation, I think a better illustration would be a trapeze artist who has a net underneath. This, I don't know what they do, I just you know, see a little picture now and then, but this trapeze artist is up in the air doing flips and grabbing onto other rings and flying through the air. Amazing feats of bravery and courage and timing and precision. Would anybody say when that artist was finished with the routine, well, you didn't really do that because there was a net underneath you? Again, I think this pictures better the temptation of Jesus Christ. Yes, his divine nature was in a sense the net. He would never sin, but he completed the work on the rings. In his human nature, he experienced all of the power of temptation and never yielded. It doesn't work entirely to see his divine nature as just something of a safety net. But as far as human pictures can help us, perhaps this is at least somewhat helpful to know not a force field around him that kept him untouched, but rather he sensed it all, he felt it all, he dealt with it all in his human nature, and he did not sin. 
Think of these words stated to those who were still alive and knew Jesus. John 8 and verse 29, Jesus said, I always do what pleases Him. John 8 and verse 46, Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? He says to His enemies. They could not. 1 Peter 2 and verse 22, He committed no sin and no deceit was found in His mouth. 1 John 3 and verse 5, In Him is no sin. And as we've read earlier, Hebrews 4 and verse 15, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. We need to stop from time to time and to savor, to taste, to sense the beauty of Jesus Christ. He did not sin. And that increases all the wonder of the next point of this verse. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. Now the meaning, words are being stretched here beyond their full capacities perhaps to express this idea. Obviously, Jesus, it, it doesn't mean that Jesus ceased to exist as a person and became sin in some abstract sense. Jesus became sin in an abstract manner. And it doesn't mean that Jesus became a sinner. But what does it mean that Jesus became sin, that he was made sin for us? The meaning, I think, is that God appointed Jesus to assume a legal standing of moral guilt. God looked on Jesus and treated him as if he were a sinner. You talk about unfair. Pretty difficult for us to be accused of wrongdoing when we have done absolutely right. Jesus had never done wrong ever, and he stood before the bar of God as guilty of sin in some sense. The meaning of became sin is clarified by the Old Testament sacrificial system. Remember, so often the legislation is described in the Old Testament accounts that the worshiper would bring a sacrifice and put that sacrifice on the altar and then do what? Put the hand on the head of that sacrifice. An identification, a passing in a sense of the human sin upon the sacrificial animal. Jesus Christ, in this sense, became sin. He took our sin in himself. The meaning of became sin, I think, is further clarified, and even more than perhaps the Old Testament uh, background, by the parallelism of this very verse. Notice it. We'll, we'll jump ahead here for just a moment. But God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So the meaning of became sin is clarified by the parallel notion that we are made righteous. <clears throat> Jesus bore our sin for us. He was judged in our place. Just as we do not deserve His righteousness, so He did not deserve our sin. But in this great exchange, the sinless sacrifice became viewed as a guilty sinner. It's said so precisely in Isaiah 53, where the prophet says, We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, 
And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. The Lord makes his life a guilt offering. He poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sin of many. There in our Old Testament context, clearly sacrificial language. Jesus Christ being the Lamb of God and bearing the sin of the world. Peter put it in 2.24 of his first epistle, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Later he says, for Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous. You know, this really doesn't make any sense, and we need to say this in our day. It really doesn't make any sense if God does not judge sinners. If God does not judge sin, then there is no need for a sacrificial substitute. No need for anyone to die in our place. And there is no need for this remembrance. And so in churches where this view of God is taught, that he has no wrath, he has no anger, and there is no judgment, this meal is gutted of all importance. And that's why it becomes pure ritual. Because we're eating and drinking to nothing. But we understand, as Scripture teaches so clearly, that God is a God of wrath. That He is a God of judgment. That we are in desperate need of being rescued from that divine judgment. Romans 1 and verse 18 says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Another way to gut this meal of all meaning is to say that doesn't apply to me. All the godlessness and wickedness that I'm not there I'm good in myself, then there's no need for this meal. There's no need for the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Because you see yourself as fine on your own. We come by God's grace as a church to this meal and say that we desperately need the salvation of Jesus Christ. He died in our place to bear the wrath of God, which we deserved. And so this meal becomes for us something extremely meaningful because it views us for who we are and God for who he is <clears throat> and sees what Jesus did and with tears of joy celebrates. Since God is the all-glorious God and since God is a God of judgment, the ultimate horror is to be abandoned by God. And that is precisely what happened to Jesus Christ. In Matthew 27 and verse 46, he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We need to understand that Jesus is drawing there from Psalm 22. It's not a forsaking forever. The context of Psalm 22 anticipates a future deliverance. But in that moment, at that time, Jesus Christ was abandoned by God. He suffered in that moment hell on earth. Where God was not, where God turned his back, where he bore our sin in his body. 
And in that moment, God poured out His holy anger upon the Son. The hot fire of God's judging wrath fell upon Christ that day on the cross. The good news, Christian, and for anyone who hears me, the good news is not that God is not a wrathful judge. The good news is that God's holy anger against sin was satisfied by Jesus for all who believe. That's the good news. And we come around this table to celebrate this good news. We gather to celebrate grace. A grace that we need. He who had no sin was made sin for us. The third idea here is that in Jesus we become righteous so that Here's why He laid down His life and bore our sin in our place, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. The righteousness of God I take to be the righteousness that comes from God. He is its source and its giver. That we might become the righteousness that God gives or the righteousness that is sourced in God. This is not a righteousness we earn or that we deserve. It is a standing God imputes to us. He credits it to us. This does not mean that we become entirely righteous. And anyone who's come to true saving faith in Jesus Christ knows this simply by experience. We don't need the Bible to teach us that. And for that matter, those of Wesleyan persuasion never believe that either. Uh, perfectionism within the Wesleyan tradition does not mean sinless perfection in every sense of the word. No genuine believer in Christ believes that we are saved and then become perfect. That's not what it means to become the righteousness of God, sinless perfection. What it means is that by virtue of what Christ has done, we stand before God forgiven, justified, righteous. We stand in a righteous position. Here is a great wonder, putting it together. He who was entirely righteous was counted sinful so that we who are entirely sinful may be counted righteous. Why is that? We may never fully know, but the Word of God just says it's grace. And it's love. That we who are entirely sinful would be counted righteous because of the work of Jesus Christ. That is God's love. Not a love that's unneeded. A love that's desperately needed. We notice this righteousness is received in Him. That refers, I think, in Paul's writings to that concept of being in Christ or as uh, Martin puts it, the faith nexus with Christ, who was appointed as our substitute. We are united with Christ in His death and in His resurrection. It's not enough to simply know about what Jesus did. We are joined to Him by faith in the act of death and resurrection. So that as Romans 3, 21 and 22 says, now a righteousness from God apart from law, has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. 
And this plumber puts it this way, what wonder is this? It is by union of Christ with man that Christ is identified with human sin. And it is by union of man with Christ that man is identified with divine righteousness. So, as we approach this table, I invite you to come only as a sinner. If you would come and think that you are not a sinner, you're not ready to celebrate the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Come as a sinner. Come realizing, first of all, the sinlessness of Jesus. Meditate on that as we pass the elements. Think about what that means, that He is sinless. Come as a sinner rejoicing that the sinless Son bore your sin on the cross and died in your place. And come as a sinner knowing that through faith we have been robed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Do you hear those words that we sang earlier? Bold, I approach the eternal throne. I picture myself walking into the throne room of God and walking. Not crawling, not running away, not apologizing for my sin, but coming boldly before the throne of God, reverently, but boldly walking and bowing before his throne because of what Jesus did for me. Come knowing that you're robed in the righteousness of Christ. Come knowing that we have no place participating in this meal outside of the grace of Jesus. And come and worship. Worship that grace, realizing that it is the gospel of Jesus Christ that brings us here. We invite to this table so as not to make it a sham. We invite to this table only those who know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, who have followed Him according to His command in baptism, and who are living in fellowship with Him. By that, we do not speak of sinless perfection. We simply are saying, if you are holding on to sin, don't hold on to the elements. There's no harm in passing it by, but if you refuse to turn from your sin, there's other things that need to happen in your life spiritually today before you commune with Christ in this way. Don't make it a sham, but also come boldly. None of us deserves to be here. If you know Jesus as your personal Savior, you followed Him in believer's baptism, and you can come today with clear conscience, knowing that God has forgiven your sin, we invite you to come and to participate in this meal. Let's turn to 314 in our hymnals.